Ligoi comrades, you are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in schools and iCorporate media. My name is JD, this is my co-host Isha, and we're joined by Brandon. Austerity is the idea of cutting social programs in order to save money. This, in theory, is supposed to stimulate economic growth, but today... We have Professor Mark Blythe from Brown University, who is also the author of Austerity, A History of a Dangerous Idea, to talk about austerity, its historical origins, and why it's such a dangerous idea. I I actually was reading your book, and I was really fascinated with the idea of how libertarianism and small government started with John Locke. Can we can you explain the philosophical origins and the political climate around that time? Um sure. Um I haven't had any coffee yet, but let me see if I can get stuck into that. Um so where to start? Where to start? Um okay, starting now. Okay. Um okay, so we when I was writing the book, I had to answer this question: where does this idea of small government? Where does it come from? Why has it got such a kind of collective hold on the imaginary? And at the time, I was teaching a kind of classics of political economy class. And that class uh, started off with, you know, Aquinas and a few things, and then it bumbles into Locke. And the reading of Locke that I've always had is one that comes from a Canadian um, political theorist called C.B. McPherson. And C.B. McPherson's reading of Locke is one that basically says, just skip all the stuff about limited government. Skip all the stuff about kings. Just go to the property chapter. Because what Locke is writing is a manifesto, a political manifesto, no different from Karl Marx's manifesto 300 years later, for essentially a redistribution of property rights and political power in England during the English Civil War, away from the kings and the nobles, towards the lower nobility, such as himself. So this is the rise of the House of Commons, all this sort of stuff. And the key thing there is property. Who owns property? Property is the asset that earns money. Property is land rents. Property gives you peasants. Peasants gives you soldiers. This is the whole sort of foundation of the manorial medieval economy. And it's changing. It's uh, becoming kind of proto-capitalist. And what I mean by that is the political struggle here is a struggle over property rights, but ultimately then it's a struggle over the state. Now, here's Locke's dilemma, if you want to put it this way, and this is at the heart of all libertarian questions, is the following. If you have a state and you need a state to make markets, markets don't happen by themselves. If you have to have public goods such as public order, if you have to have external security, internal security, roads, if you have to have weights and measures and a court system for adjudicating contract disputes, none of that comes out of the ground. All of it comes from the action of a state and the growth of a bureaucracy. But your problem is this. You've got a king, and you don't like that king because that king can come along and take away your property rights. Well, when you invent the modern state, you're inventing something that's arguably more powerful than the king. And any state that's strong enough to protect your property rights is also strong enough to, guess what, take away your property rights. So this is the kind of the, uh, the dilemma at the heart of Locke and, if you will, the kind of neuralgia that infects all liberalism going forward, <clears throat> which is that they need a state to build the world that they want to have, which is all about markets and trade, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, if you go down that road, then there's a chance that you'll build a state that will take away those things and actually threaten the very property rights you're trying to establish. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's kind of the... Um, it- place where democracy and uh, the capitalism clash. But one thing I found really self-serving about Locke was his definition of waste, where it's if you mix your labor, but then if you transfer it to currency, it's not waste. Um, It doesn't seem logically consistent, but it seems very self- self justificatory yeah? Yes. Well, it is. I mean, ultimately... What Locke is trying to do alongside this project of building the state while limiting the state is to justify the shift to a regime in which you can have unheard of concentrations of wealth. Not because that's a target, but Locke realizes that deep buried within this kind of new social formation called capitalism is a tendency for profits to compound over time for um, rents to increase over time, for inequality to rise over time. 
And he also has to explain this device called money. Where does money come from? It's just a contrivance. Well, it is, but at the same time, it's funny how money is always run by the state. This is the one monopoly that the state will jealously guard. If you want a little bit of historical color on this one, one of the uh, most famous people from this period is Isaac Newton. And then people think about Newton's contributions to physics and calculus, etc., all of which is true. But he was also the master of the Royal Mint. And he went after counterfeiters with an incredible degree of zeal. And he was responsible for dozens of them being hung. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's a whole politics of how, so the justification of money, the justification of unlimited wealth, and the power of the state to issue money coming together in this moment. And it seems like the founding fathers were very influenced by Locke. But in your book, you also talk about the other more dangerous person, um, Adam Smith and his invisible market hand idea. Can you expound on that? Well, I don't think he's dangerous. I've got quite a soft spot for Adam, actually, in comparison with Locke. <laughs> um, and the way that I look at Smith is the following. So he's writing, Locke's basically writing at a time of tremendous change in political ferment and civil war. And Smith is writing at a time after the Scottish crown and the English crown have come together, when free trade and opening up markets and the beginnings of industrial capitalism are all beginning to happen. So you've got a country like Scotland, which 100 years previously, a third of the population was dying of famine, that had done the, the Darien ventures, which most people don't know about. Scotland basically put a third of national treasure into 40 ships with 2,000 men and went off to Panama to build the Panama Canal in 1631, and the whole thing went bankrupt. Um, so, you know, the place was in a hell of a mess. And then, you know, 70 years later, Edinburgh is the capital of La Belle Lettre, and you've got the Scottish Enlightenment and so on and so forth. So it's a time of sort of great liberal positivity, at least in terms of its own imaginary in itself, but also changing the material conditions in which it works in. So, you know, the, the way that I approach um, Smith's contribution to the story is he picks up on this problem with the state. And he says, yeah, you know, Locke's absolutely correct. We need a state, but we need to also limit the state. And he has a very prescribed set of functions that he thinks the state should do. It should do external defense and internal security and weights and measures, also education, public diversions to keep the masses loyal, et cetera. So there's quite a large role for the state going on in Smith. But ultimately, where he gets tricky with this is he recognizes that his free markets aren't so free, that most of the decisions that really matter, such as wage rates and profit rates, are really held, are really decided by political power. And in that case, the capitalist class, his class, has always got the whip hand and indeed should always have the whip hand. So there's an acknowledgement in Smith, if you read him carefully, that essentially the market system rests upon political power and it's political power and a particular liberal image which draws from but goes beyond Locke. And why are these old ideas like from 300 years old still infecting a lot of academia and econ advisors and government? Because they're kind of popular. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's really quite simple, right? I mean, you know, if you're lucky enough to be in the top 20% of the income distribution in the society that you live, things are okay. You know, so long as you turn a blind eye to plastic pollution, so long as you don't really think about the environment on a daily basis, the fact that we're in the midst of a giant collapse in species biodiversity, things look okay. And, you know, there's the old Churchill line about capitalism. It's the worst possible system apart from all the others. Although he actually said that about democracy, but you could really say that about capitalism as well. So there's a way in which, you know, for many people's lived experience, you know, we, we're, we're, we've built a society which is exponentially richer than any that had been uh, any society that had hitherto existed. And, you know, while it has its problems, this system of individual contracts and markets and so on and so forth seems to basically on some level deliver the goods, at least for the people that matter in society, that being the top 20% of the population. So, you know, there's a great deal of self-interest written into this ideology. Could you talk a little bit about how austerity came back into vogue in the latter half of the 20th century, how we turned away from Keynesianism and the notion that government spending is what drives economic growth? to the opposite. <laughs> sure. 
All right. So yeah. So 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 the base. So the issue then becomes, you know, if you've got these kind of Smithian liberal ideas running all the way from the 17th century into the 19th century, and they're back again. Was there ever an interregnum? And it was an interregnum, and that was the so-called, if you will, Keynesian moment. And that occurs basically from the 1930s through to the 1970s. So, you know, what happened? Why was there a different time there? And again, we need to stop and think for a minute about how different this period was. As I said earlier, one of the issues in capitalism, which Thomas Piketty has highlighted, is that you get ever-increasing ever concentrations of wealth. And he talks about it through his simple formula, R is greater than G, the rate of return on assets is greater than the rate of growth in the real economy and hence wages. But, you know, you could take a simpler uh, a simpler way of looking at this and say, okay, what's the macro story? And the macro story was we had World War One, and World War One was crap. World War One was meant to last about six weeks and involve the upper classes of Europe having a punch-up in France in the summer. Instead, it turns into almost five years of unimaginable slaughter and the bankruptcy of several European powers, which led to the redrawing of the map and a whole new set of politics. Now, that politics was very unstable, think Weimar democracy. And also linked into this was an attempt to restore the old gold standard that the 19th century order had, had rested upon, which basically made the domestic level of employment and output determined by the inflows and outflows of trade. And that was inherently disruptive to these economies. So by the time you get to the 1920s and the gold standard attempt to restore it fails, you then spiral into the Great Depression, bilateralism, tariffs, the whole lot, the rise of fascism. And then ultimately the whole thing settled in an even bigger conflagration called World War II. There was a realization that simply going back to free and open markets and letting labor's supply price be the adjustment mechanism for the economy simply wasn't going to work. Now, there'd been an intellectual revolution going on, not just through Keynes's writings, but all over the world in Sweden and the United States and various places, that essentially the, the macro economy was different from the micro. That Smith's story about the invisible hand in free markets and demand and supply and everybody getting what they want, not by beneficence, but by fallen self-interest, simply doesn't scale up to a global level, as shown by the Great Depression, the rise of fascism, communism, and World War II. So you couldn't simply turn around to the working classes of the West once again and say, look, lads, I'm afraid it's back to the unemployment heap for you. You've been fighting fascism for five years. God knows you probably got 50 million people with PTSD, and uh, good luck with that. So you had to do something, and that something was the creation of a different form of cap capitalism, what some scholars have called an embedded form of liberalism. And what that meant was one where you restricted the flow of capital to make people invest at home. That investment then spurred productivity growth. Productivity growth paid for higher wages. The social formations on either side of that were big labor, as in unions, and big capital, as in organized business interests. The Europeans called this corporatism. The Americans called it COLA contracts, cost of living adjustment contracts. And essentially, this system worked really well, in part because there'd been so much capital destruction in Europe that it took them ages to build themselves back up again. So from the 40s to the 50s to the 60s, the whole world is quite happy to go along with an order where the dollar is dominant, the United States is the dominant spender in military power, and on the other side, you've got the communists in the Soviet Union, you've got Europe in the middle rebuilding itself. So this is the period the French call the 30 glorious, the 30 glorious years, the Italians call it il boom, and it's when uh, Harold Macmillan, the British Prime Minister, said to the British working classes, you've never had it so good, which was actually true. Now, this is also called the Great Compression. What happened was the top end of the income distribution went down, the bottom end went up, and the whole distribution jumped up massively. So this is the growth of the Western middle classes. So there's the happy story, and it's all made possible by a new set of ideas about the economy called Keynesianism that says limit the power of finance and make sure you've got adequate demand. Now, the problem with the system, pardon me, the problem with the system is that it tends over time to generate inflation. Why? Because if you're running persistently full labor markets, the marginal worker will get paid more than their marginal output. Less formally, the dumbest person you know can leave his job at 12 o'clock and get a better paying job by four. If that's the case, if you want to hold on to skilled workers, then you're going to have to really pay, through, pay for them. And if you do that, the only way you can do that is by profits taking a hit. So if profits are taking a hit and labor share of national income is consistently increasing, the capitalist class begins to question whether this is a good bargain. The only way that they can maintain their profit margins, however, is by passing that on to consumers. 
that then pushes labor to demand more in wages. And thus you get the wage price spiral inflation of the 1970s, which leads to 20% inflation in the core countries, which is broken by Paul Volcker jacking interest rates up to 21%. And then the Reagan and Thatcher recessions and turn against labor, which happened in the 1980s. So you have a problem. You have this 30 year settlement that really benefits labor, but really begins to not benefit capital. And capital organizes and spreads new ideas that say that capital is the most important thing rather than labor. And that's basically the beginnings of what we call neoliberalism. So by the time that you get to the financial crisis, we've been in another 30 year regime where the top 20% had made off with everything. Free markets were again the touchstone of good governance. Governments were meant to get out of the way rather than actually try and do anything in economics. Thus, when the crisis hit, it was a complete shock. And if you will, the DNA that was hardwired into our politics at that time was, well, then obviously it can't be markets to blame. If these banks went up, it was probably bad regulation. It's probably the state. And the one thing we should do is we need to restore investor confidence. And how do we do that? Well, we go around spending money now to, to cushion the shock. You will end up with a bigger deficit. The bigger deficit will result in bigger debts. You will have more debts and less growth. That will make investors even less likely to invest Therefore, you have to please the investor class, not the working class. Welcome to austerity. That's basically it. One thing I well, one thing I was really when I first heard about you, it was when you predicted global Trumpism. So why does it seems to have happened in the 1920s, and it's going? It seems to be happening now when you look at Bolsonaro, Modi, mm -hmm. Trump. Why does austerity lead to the rise of fascism? Actually, it's not just austerity, it's financial crisis. So there's a really excellent paper on this by an economist uh, called Maurice Shularlik. It's a bit of a tongue twister. But uh, him and a bunch of people looked at basically the rise of right populism uh, and found that, guess what, the biggest predictor is a giant financial crisis. And the reason financial crisis lead to this is financial crises tend to impoverish people who are kind of the marginal middle class member so things have been tough for a while. Your wages haven't been rising. That's been the story of the past 30 years through neoliberalism. All the returns have gone to the top. There's been wage stagnation basically in all countries for at least 10 to 12 years, if not 30 years in the case of the US. And because of that wage stagnation, people have taken on excessive debt. They've taken on lots of credit to maintain their consumption, et cetera, et cetera. And you're told that you can keep this going so long as interest rates are low and you can always refi your mortgage or refi your credit card or whatever it happens to be. And then the whole system that makes this possible blows up. And at that point in time, who gets bailed out? It's not the debtors that get bailed out, it's the creditors who get bailed out. That is the essence of austerity. The people who are the ones that are on the wrong side of the debt contract are the ones that will pay for it, ask the Greeks. So when you do this, you're basically taking people who are already financially stressed and then putting even more financial stress on them, whilst proving that the people who've been governing them are a bunch of incompetent losers who have no idea doing what they're doing. At that point in time, anyone who comes along with the sort of the plain spoken, I'm the guy who can cut through the bullshit, these people are all horrible, drain the swamp, et cetera, et cetera, chuck in a hearty dose of nationalism under the guise of we need to protect our workers. There's a member, even Gordon Brown fell for that one, they said British jobs for British workers at the height of the financial crisis. And then the conditions are right for this. For the left response to this, a kind of cosmopolitan internationalism has never been popular. It's usually tolerated when things are going extremely well. It tends to be, if you will, the ideology of the top 10%. And it really has no traction down below. In terms of history, but like, what is it that we need to do to stop this global rise in quasi-fascism or full-blown fascism? No pressure. <laughs> um, well, off the top of my head, before I've had no breakfast. <laughs> but I really do appreciate that you came this early in the no, morning. I'm simply saying, I mean, you know, the, the thing about we can have a conversation, but. Mark, please tell us how to reverse the entire global order which has been put in place for 30 years. It's a bit <laughs> of a ridiculous question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, but the, the thing is I can't do that. You know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous to even talk that way. I mean, you could talk... I mean, the, here's the thing. What you need are... Uh, <laughs> there's no shortage of policies, right? 
these days you can go to a democratic think tank in the US and you say, I'm concerned about urban development. And they'll say, oh, great, we've got a policy. Here's a policy and here's the RCT experiment that verifies that it works, that was done by these social scientists, blah, blah, blah. And you can take a thousand of them and stitch them together and it doesn't add up to a vision. Ultimately, these things work because they give people a sense of belonging in a moment of uncertainty. And if the left's version of belonging is anyone can belong, and it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, we should take you in. Well, you know, there's a lot of people who are further down the income distribution than us who really don't think that's a good idea. Because when you take <clears throat> 2 million immigrants into Germany, the fear is that they're not going to end up in Prenzlauer Berg with the 10%. They're going to end up basically in East Germany with the other 10% at the other end of the distribution. They're the ones that are going to be competing with them for public housing. They're the ones that are going to be changing the character of the schools, the failing schools that their kids already go to. So once you admit that sort of our preferences for a kind of liberal cosmopolitanism that masquerades as a leftism, is actually differentially experienced across the income distribution. Why should we be surprised that people further down don't buy this? Um, that, that's actually true. I've even noticed Tucker Carlson making this exact same argument about immigrants and that they're not living in the fences in the suburbs, they're gonna be living in your house. Like, I've yeah. seen that video. Totally. Well, it's, it's also true. <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> I mean, he's not lying. I hate, to, I hate to say it, but it's also true. I mean, when I lived in Berlin a few years ago, I was living in Prenzlauerberg, and you know, and this is where exactly everyone is like, you know, incredibly liberal in their preferences. But you're not seeing any refugees kipping up in Prenzlauerberg. It's simply not true. So you're expressing a preference that creates externalities, but you never have to internalize them yourself. And, and the idea is that we have to make the people who create the problem internalize their uh, cost. But not just the problem. Let's, let's turn it around, right? And you know, part of this is a this is the vision issue, right? So there are 2,000 migrants kick up uh, the German border or the European border and they want to go to Germany. And the Germans say, we're schaffen das, we can do this. And at first, there's this tremendous outpouring of support. People applauding them for making it. They're talking about how they're going to integrate them into the labor market, the whole lot. And within three months, the whole thing's hijacked by the right. Why was this? Because basically, the political forces in the middle, the ones that run things, spent zero political capital actually trying to ingratiate, to, I try to make this work. Why? Because they don't vote. These people don't vote. And it's inherently problematic taking these people in. So all you're going to do is piss people off by reminding them that it's going on. Now, here's the tragedy of it. And here's my favorite little stat in Germany. The Germans have some of the, the highest pension promises in the world. They've promised themselves they'll get 80% of their last retirement, of their final income, or 80% of their average income for the rest of their lives once they retire. And they all live about 20 years after retirement. Now, the only way that works is if you have enough people who are working to pay the taxes, to pay the pensions. But the Germans, unfortunately, have one of the lowest birth rates in the developed world. 1.4 is the replacement rate, which means that they're shrinking as a population. So the, the, the political uh, move was clear. What Merkel should have done is to come out and say, okay, Everybody who thinks it's a problem bringing these people into the country, let me give you this one. Do you want to have a pension 10 years from now? Because if you do, this is the, how we're going to fund it. This is the only way that this works. And then you build a coalition for bringing those people in and making them part of your society rather than marginal workers who are competing with you for public goods. But if you're not willing to spend the political capital on it, if you're not willing to put it as a vision that people can see, okay, I know why we're doing this. It's not just humanitarianism. This is actually good for us for the long run. Then you can go somewhere. But the political classes of the West have become so poor in terms of their political capital that they're unable to spell any convincing vision, which leaves the ground purely open to the right. Um, if they had the Deutsche Marks, um, they could have created more money and created more jobs. Uh, so, and in 2000, was it when they adopted the euro? Like, how did that like handcuff them from doing the full? Oh, it didn't handcuff the Germans. It's been a massive. No, it's been a massive boost for the Germans. It's not. There's been no net effect for bad effect for them. What it's done is it's given them an undervalued exchange rate. It's allowed them to expand their investments in Eastern Europe so that their supply chains aren't global. They're in Eastern Europe. 
Eastern European ones basically tell German workers, if you don't like it just now, we can move the plant to Romania. That's why you get German wage stagnation, but at the same time, Romania is booming. They're doing incredibly well in export selling BMWs to the rest of the world, at least until Dieselgate really finally kicks in. But uh, no, it has not been a, a net bad effect for them at all. And in fact, actually, this is another one. The whole migrants thing into Germany has basically stopped. One of the figures I heard was five a day. So they're still having a moral panic about all these people coming into the country and it's down to about five a day, which is just incredible. So once again, this is nothing to do with currencies or any of this stuff. This is a failure of political imagination. I mean, your question to me was, how do we stop this? Well, you can't stop an idea unless you've got another one. And if your only idea, other idea is, let's bail out the bank, not admit that we're doing it, and uh, let's just carry on as usual. And anybody who disagrees with us is a bad person. It's just not going to work. Would it be accurate to say that ultimately, when people are suffering, they need someone to blame? No, I think when people are suffering, they need an explanation as to why, and they need actually someone to say, and this is how we stop the suffering. I didn't mean that in a derogatory sense. I'm, I'm a socialist, so my answer tends to be the ruling class or the capitalist class. <laughs> but and I feel like one of the problems with neoliberalism is that it doesn't. Yes. I mean, as a, as a, a go-to answer, it's not that bad. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, one thing I noticed is in, uh, well, uh, I didn't notice, Matt Taibbi noticed this, but in the 2009 economic crash, um, the first few weeks of the narrative was Wall Street messed up because they over leveraged, um, over leveraged the mortgages and packed a lot of bad mortgages and still gave them triple A credits. But then mm-hmm. apparently like, within like six months, the entire narrative changed to the government being the problem. Mm-hmm. How like how much effort is being spent on this kind of prop, uh, this kind of narrative change? Well, I mean, it's very simple. I mean, think about it this way. Let's look, look at it just now. So the Republicans are always concerned with deficits when Democrats are in control. So Obama inherits a giant financial crisis, which is caused by the policies enacted by both Democratic and Republican administrations going as far back as the mid-1990s. The banking system blows up. Basically, this is a crisis of the creditor class. They're the people that fund politics. They're the people that run the country. Simple as that. Now, jump forward to today. We're adding a trillion dollars to the national debt. We're going to have a trillion dollar deficit, apparently, even though the economy is growing quite well. But we're going to have a very big deficit because of Trump's terrible tax cuts. Now, the Democrats are the ones that are terrified of deficits, and it's all terrible. And the Republicans don't give a shit about deficits. So what does this tell us? It tells you it's about political opportunism. If at the end of the day, someone has to pay for this, I don't want it to be my clients. My clients are the ones that have caused the mess, and they're very quickly going to spin their way out of it by saying, look, if we go down this road, we're going to have a 10% budget deficit. That's going to lead to a quintupling billion, jillion, tons of thousands of um, national debt. And you just get Republicans saying this over and over and over and over again. And that basically puts the Democrats in the firing line. And suddenly you end up going for an argument for a stimulus, but it can't be too big or it won't get through. And of course, you do a 700 billion stimulus and it adds to the deficit, adds to the debt. You know, look at all of the OECD countries as an inflection point in their debt in 2008. Gee, I wonder what happened in 2008. Oh, that's right. We bailed the global banking system. And basically, every country that was involved added about 30% of their debt. Now, if you've got Reinhardt and Rogoff and everybody else running around at that time saying, oh, debt's the worst thing in the universe, and if we have more debt, we'll all end up dead, blah, blah, blah. What you're doing is you're basically making apologies for the creditor class and making sure that it's the debtor class that pays for it. I describe the financial crisis as a class-specific put option. So basically what it is is, by creating an integrated too-big-to-fail, too-big-to-bail system, you've got free insurance via the government on the taxpayer. So when you go bang, you're too small to internalize the costs that you've made, back to that notion of internalizing your externalities. And therefore, those costs need to be picked up by everyone else. So my favorite analogy for what US finance looks like or global finance looks like and still looks like is it's more like the nuclear power industry. So if you're the Japanese electric company and you have Fukushima and Fukushima goes bang, there's no way that corporation can pay for that cleanup. There's no way that corporation can internalize those externalities. So basically, the costs have to be spread all over society. The banking system is no different. 
If Citibank goes bang tomorrow, it's so devastating for the system that you cannot just get Citibank's living will and existing assets to cover the costs. You need to spread that over everybody. And that's why it becomes a class-specific put option. Can you explain why the idea of public debt is total BS? Well, look, it's not total BS. Look, let's, let's, let's be reasonable about what we're saying here, right? If you're a country that gives up its printing press, you're in the euro, mm-hmm. then you have a, what's called a hard budget constraint, mm-hmm. right? You cannot directly, you can directly issue more bonds if you want to, but then there's a question if anybody wants to buy them. If you're a country like Greece that goes into the global financial crisis with 100% debt to GDP in the good times, why? Because nobody paid taxes for 20 years, right? All of this is true, right? Then when the shit hits the fan, financial markets will go, all right, do we really think we're going to get this money back from Greece? No. So then you dump Greece. Once you dump Greece, you've got to cover your losses. So then you start to dump Ireland. Then you dump Portugal. And then you get the pigs and contagion and all the fabulous things that happen in Europe. So there are real consequences to being a country that issues debt when you don't get to print your own currency, right? It's just like being an American state. When American states promise endless pensions to public sector workers because they know that some other guy will have to pay for it because the guy who makes the promise is long gone, those are real problems. Now, if you're not that country, if you're the US, if you're Britain, if you're Sweden, if you have your own currency, at the end of the day, when there's a financial crisis, People want to hold what's called safe assets. What are safe assets? Things that will still have value 10 years from now. Do you know, or even 10 minutes from now, do you know how much Apple's going to be worth in a financial crisis? No, you don't. Do you know how much the stock of any company is going to be worth? No. So you want to get out of equities, which is why you see huge falls in stock markets when this happens. And you want to buy bonds. Why? Because governments have the intergenerational capacity to tax and print their own money, so long as they're not in the euro. So if you're starting off at about 50% debt to GDP and you have to balloon to 100%, ultimately it doesn't matter because your cost of capital selling those bonds falls to zero or below zero in a crisis. So I can finance for free and not do austerity because the very people that I have to placate are the ones who want to buy safe assets. The safest asset is a government bond. Once you realize that, you realize that this really is bullshit. Right? That's the, it's that simple. It's a simple balance sheet and arithmetic problem. If you want to buy safe assets in a crisis to ride out the crisis, I'm the sole supplier, the monopoly supplier of safe assets. My cost of capital is zero. You will pay me to take those bonds. I will use the receipts from that to then cushion the recession. And then when we grow again, I'll pay back the debt. It's dead easy. You don't need to do anything else. Now, there's a politics in this one, which is, yes, but will they pay back the debt? And that's a very real question. Because if you look at it, the the countries that uh, were able to do this, such as Britain, are now stuck with a combination of high debt, relatively low growth, strangely pretty good employment, but very low wage growth. And and also falling productivity. And this is a common problem everywhere. But strictly from an accounting point of view, the notion that we all die of debt is just nonsense. I mean, here's another way to think about it. Every every few months, I give a talk to uh, US Navy people. And uh, I walk in and sometimes and I say, right, so who thinks the national debt's too high? And every single hand goes up. And how high is it? And they're like $17 trillion. And that's right. So how big is the economy? $17 trillion, right? Okay, so you got 100% debt to GDP. Now let's net out the government's assets, like the Navy. So you go down and you go down to about 70% of GDP. Okay, so that's still about 12, 12, 12, 11, 12 trillion dollars. That's a, that's a lot, right? So who thinks if we could, at the stroke of a pen, just get rid of half the debt, that would be a great idea? And every single hand goes up. And I say, congratulations, gentlemen, you've just destroyed half of national savings. Because what people forget is that the public's debt is the private sector's savings. They're exactly the same thing. Now, once you take those two things, the argument that like you know, debt is inherently bad and destructive, yeah. If you're in the euro and you have the tax collection capabilities of Greece, it's a bad idea, and you should have been paying your taxes, and you shouldn't have went into a crisis with German interest rates and 100% debt to GDP. That's bullshit too. But if you're the United Kingdom or anyone with your own currency, a reasonably well-run fisc and decent growth prospects, it's complete horseshit. Given all that, why didn't Greece uh, go off the euro? Why didn't they start printing their own currency rather than you know, be forced to cut things? 
Well, well, first of all, the forcing, my objection to the forcing to cut was because it didn't help. It did no good. If you look at this from a kind of Hippocratic Oath perspective, first do no harm, right? Now, could they get out? Okay, so here's your problem. Everybody has their savings in euros. You know there's a new currency coming in, the new drachma. Do you think that the new drachma will be worth less than the euro? Yes or no? Yes. Right. So do you have an incentive to open up a German bank account as fast as you possibly can? Absolutely. And therefore, what would happen? All of the euros in the country would leave before you even tried to swap them for the new drachma. The problem with the euro is it's a Hotel California problem. You can check in, but you can't check out. My objection to, apart from the fact that that's a stupid idea in the first place, was that simply punishing the Greeks through austerity at the same time was not just counterproductive, it was cruel. Uh, in your book, you say they wanted to make an example of Greece um, yep. as like a warning to maybe like Spain or Italy. Um, and th is that why it was so cruel? Well, yes, it was. Because think about it, right? If you're running a giant multi-country currency union, and you lack the institutions of a real country. You don't have a common unemployment fund. You don't have a common bank resolution fund that works. You don't have deep capital markets. You don't have high degrees of labor mobility from one side of the country to the other. If you have these discrete sovereigns that all have vastly different economies, vastly different political agendas, right? And you're all sharing one currency union and one interest rate. The only way you make this work is if you have a set of rules that everybody obeys. Otherwise, you instantly start cutting side deals with everyone and the whole thing falls apart. So if you're on the creditor side of this, if you're in the northern countries that lent the money to the Greeks back to the banks and then to the ESM, you don't want to see your assets that you've given to these people go south. So you want to enforce rules. And Greece is only 2% of Eurozone GDP. I think they've managed to shrink it now to about one6 this was an easy and effective way of demonstrating to big debt countries like Italy that if you guys get out of line, you can expect exactly the same treatment. Well, we're about to see a replay of that because Italy is on a slow motion collision course with, Bur with uh, Brussels. So we'll see how that one plays out. What would happen if all of the countries who were afraid of this left um, the, the EU at one time? They need to have a time machine. Ah. <laughs> You couldn't do it. It's impossible. It's a Hotel California. You can't do it without causing the capital flight that will blow up your banking system and destroy your national savings. There is no politician in any system that says, hey, lads, I've got a great idea. It'd be great if we were outside the euro. We could grow again. I agree. How do we get there? We need to destroy half of national savings. Good luck. Hello, everyone. This is Sound Editor Ted. I want to say thank you for listening to part one and stay tuned for part two after this message. And the cost of producing and recording we need your help. Please become a patron. It is as cheap as $5 a month and you get exclusive access to all our patron-only content. To become a patron, go to http colon slash slash www.patreon.com slash historic underscore Lee. Can we talk about um, Brexit? How did that happen? And what were the conditions the British were facing to think uh, to help I mean, to create Brexit? <laughs> so Brexit is, so I, I'm, I'm Scottish, as you know, but I'm also British. I, I, I don't really sort of like sign up to the Scottish nationalist thing. Although if Britain keeps doing what Britain's doing now, I may be forced to reconsider that. But I describe myself as a Brit and I grew up there. And the one thing you have to understand about the Brits is they, they love the notion that they can bumble through anything. You know, they can just kind of like, you know, oh, it'll all work out in the end, blah, blah, blah. So the Brits are the only people that can have an existential constitutional crisis that's also a political crisis, that's also a crisis of identity and sovereignty and not even realize they're doing it. And that's what Brexit was in a very bizarre sense. So here's how all this got started. There's a wonderful paper by two authors called Henry Farrell and Abe Newman in the Review of International Political Economy on Brexit. And I encourage everyone to read it because it's just, that's all you need to know. And I'm just going to tell their story. So there's a bunch of nationalist nut jobs like Farage, and they're stuck in Britain. And they think everything would be great if we could go back to like the 1950s or something like this. And, you know, this is the Jacobs Reed Moggs wing of the Tory party. And this terrible thing called Europe, and we pay in all this money and we get nothing back. So it's an existential crisis, it's a political crisis, and they don't even know they're doing it. So 
why do I say that? So this is the piece by Farrell and Newman. This is the story they tell. You got all these people like Farage, these marginal nationalist figures. They're getting nowhere. And then they decide to form a party. Now, it's very hard to form a party in Britain that's going to challenge either Labour or the Conservatives or get any kind of mass support. So what they do is they target the European elections. Now, the European elections, nobody shows up. So if you've got a small minority of people who are highly motivated, you can actually get a European seat. So this is what Farage and a bunch of them managed to do. Now, here's the even more ironic thing. Europe is predicated on the fact that everybody who joins in Europe really likes Europe. So they give you tons of money if you're a political party that gets European representation. And you're allowed to take some of that money home because they think naively that you're going to tell everyone how wonderful Europe is. So they got millions of euros and used that to basically build branches in Britain telling everyone how terrible this was. Now, this begins to hurt the right wing of the Tory party in terms of their electoral base. So David Cameron comes out one time and says, right, we're going to sort all this out. This has been a festering sore since Thatcher's time. We're going to have a kind of reckoning with the Eurosceptic wing and also UKIP. So what better way to do that than just to have a referendum? Because what we're going to do is show the world that the vast majority of Brits actually are perfectly fine with Europe. We understand we're part of Europe, and that's the way it's going to work out. Only it didn't. So in order to basically house clean the Tory party, David Cameron decided to opt for something Brits never do a referendum, which was then hijacked by a bunch of extremely right-wing and very passionate special interest groups who funded lavish campaigns about how there'd be 350 billion extra for the National Health Service if you get out of the EU and other such fantasy figures, which when they were exposed as fantasy, these people took no responsibility for, nor were they punished for in any way. And uh, now they've backed themselves into a situation whereby, you know, the Brits basically said, uh, actually, we will go for Brexit. Now, why did they say that? Because Brexit was never about Europe. Brexit was about wage stagnation. It was about the fact that when the Remain campaign, which is the entire British ruling class is getting together to tell people in a very mansplaining way why they need to do what they want them to do, which is never a good move. They went up to Sunderland and they went to the Nissan plant at Sunderland and 90% of those Nissans go straight to Europe. So the Remain campaign thought, all right, well, you know, this is a place these guys will obviously understand that this is Europe and it's very important. So they got there and they got shit for it. And during the, they always love this line, during the, the, the debate that was up there, one of the car workers shouts out in response to the thing, well, you understand, of course, that if, if you do withdraw, there'll be a loss of GDP. And this guy shouts out, your GDP. And of course, this gets kind of titters from the people on the podiums. Like, what kind of moron is that, your GDP? But that car worker was the best economist up there that day because he understood something. It doesn't matter if GDP is growing if it all goes to the London housing market. Sunderland still sucks. It doesn't matter what happens in terms of his contract because every contract he signs is worse. He's not getting any real wage gain. All the profits are going to shareholders. He's told that unless he works longer hours with shittier bathroom breaks and even less restriction, more restrictions on his job, they'll move the factory to France. Meanwhile, the company is telling the people in France that they'll move the factory to Romania and it's all zero sum against each other. And people aren't stupid. They reckon that they're working harder and harder for less and less, and all the profits are going to a tiny slice of humanity. And the, rep the representatives of that tiny slice are called the Remain campaign. So they come along and say, everything's great. Don't rock the boat. And they go, well, everything might be great for you, mate, but it's not for me. So you got a 52-48 split on something that should have been a 30-70 split because they completely misread what was going on. So the American ruling class were also... When, when in the 2016 elections were also um, talking about how Trump is dangerous and there was no, a lot of people didn't give that credence. Mm -hmm. So what was the, what did they do that was similar to the British ruling class and what did they do that was different and why did they fail? Well, let's, let's, you know, uh, first of all, ruling class is a loaded term. It implies a degree of homogeneity and sort of conspiracy, which simply isn't there particularly in the US. The US has multiple ruling classes that form contemporary alliances with each other. And sometimes they win power and sometimes they don't. The democratic elite, a term that I'm much more comfortable with, encompasses tech billionaires, Wall Street financers, hedge fund managers, as well as the professional classes. The Republicans have a very different one based upon oil and gas extraction, manufacturing industries, and Southern workers. 
So, and these are all sort of alliances of convenience, which take a great deal of time and effort to put together. So I don't like the idea that there's some kind of monolithic group of people making decisions. That's not true. But what was similar to the British uh, example was the, essentially the credibility of the mainstream representatives of, let's say, elite interests on both sides. Simply, people stopped believing them. So what twigged me off to Trump, first of all, was watching the Republican primaries where you put up mainstream after mainstream after mainstream candidate, and they got nowhere. Remember Jeb Bush? They spent $100 million on his campaign. He got nothing. The only person that got even close to Trump was Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is an evangelical nut job, right? Marco Rubio, all these people got slaughtered. So on the Republican side, the Republican base just didn't believe a word the mainstream Republicans said. And then when the Democrats decided to go for Senator Clinton, with all of the problems that her candidacy had from taking Goldman Sachs money whilst talking tough on financial regulation to giving evading answers about lots of things, to essentially not even being sure why she was doing this other than it was her turn, then that turned a lot of people off too, and particularly in the Democratic side, as we saw with the Sanders insurgency. So once the Sanders insurgency was defeated and we were left with the choice between the mainstreams on either side, once Trump took it, you just created a Brexit situation. You were giving voice to people who did not believe that your right to rule was a right to rule anymore. Why is it that both Democratic and Republican elites didn't see this coming or didn't understand what was happening while it was happening? Well, I guess the view from the steakhouse is really nice and they just didn't look down far enough. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> then quite serious. I mean, like, that's not a facetious comment. I mean, it is a facetious comment, but it's not just a facetious comment. I mean, essentially, you know, Kate McNamara at Princeton has, at, at Georgetown has a lovely paper on this called Class Bubbles. So if you think about the city of Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C. is still primarily an African-American town. It has high rates of poverty, high rates of drug abuse, incarceration, etc. But it's also surrounded now by three, I think, three of the five richest counties in the United States. So people live in a little bubble called Bethesda, where everybody lives in a million-dollar house. One person works in a six-figure job for the government. One works in a six-figure job for the private sector. And they live cheek by jowl up against some of the poorest neighborhoods in the country, but they never see each other. So if all you do is spend your time going to politics and pros and talking to other people like you who think the same things as you, it kind of becomes a bit of an echo chamber. And then when people come around and say, you know, there's a whole bunch of people out here who don't actually share your values, you take it as a personal affront. You think there's something wrong with them because they don't see the world the way that you. So I think they both got caught blindsided because all they do is talk to each other. It's like all you need to do is put on CNN for just like endless whining from the Democratic mainstream about Russia and Trump and Russia and Trump's a bad guy. Did I mention Trump's a bad guy? Russia, Russia, Russia. And then you turn on Fox and like everything's great and Democrats are evil and they hate America. Everything's great. Democrats are evil. They hate America, right? So you're just filtering into these two channels that people plug into for dopamine reinforcement. Well, this kind of, oh, I, I know we're skipping around a bit, but... Um... This rem like these two low probability events kind of reminded me of something from your book. Can you explain the black swan problem and how that like prevented people from seeing the 2008 crash? Well, that has to do with the intricacies of financial modeling. But I mean, the basic point is Nassim Taleb's point, which is very low probability things can have very high impacts. So what was the chance of a giant financial crisis? Well, it depends how you look at it. If you look around the world and say that between 1950 and 1975, there were no financial crises because we heavily regulated finance, that would tell you that if you deregulate finance, the probability increased significantly. And yet we discounted that. There were multiple crises in the periphery, starting with the Latin American debt crisis, the Mexican crisis, the tequila crisis, that's the second Mexican crisis, the East Asian financial crisis. But they were always happening to foreigners. They were happening over there in these developing countries with crony capitalism. It could never happen to us. Well, again, you're just discounting information. Ultimately, your banking system is just a bigger levered version of theirs. You just think it's safer. You've got no reason for thinking that. So eventually, it comes home to roost. So what makes that a black swan event? Well, what makes this a black swan event because you've massively discounted information that you know, right? You, 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 you can't, by definition, a black swan is something that you can't see coming. Well, we could have seen this coming and we just didn't want to see it because we refused to look at the information that was there. That actually makes a lot of sense. And so it seems like a lot of 
non-academics could kind of feel it, but a lot of economists totally miss the crisis. Yeah, but there's also the sort of the, the problem of Monday morning quarterbacking. I mean, you know, there's a great line about an economist whose name I will not mention because he's a friend. But basically, you know, he successfully predicted seven out of the last three recessions. So, you know, you can't ultimately just be sort of the, the doom monger and then eventually you get right and then everyone says, oh, you're a genius, right? Or you could be sort of like the permanent hopester and then you've got nothing to say when the crisis happens. I mean, you know, economists are people too. And, you know, some people like Steve Keen and others that were really paying attention to housing markets have a claim to saying that they, they really genuinely saw it coming. Um, but ultimately, you know, this is what, to me, it's not a surprise. This is what finance does. I mean, you know, we're just recovering from 2008, 10 years. It's perfectly feasible that in the next two to three years, we could have another tremendous blow up. Perfect. This, this is what it does. This is the nature of the beast. One thing that I've been wondering is, say we re-regulate re the financial industry, what's, um, what's to stop this from all, like, happening all over again, from them, like, to slowly claw back power and push the political class to deregulate and then you know, 2008 redux ad infinitum. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, ultimately, like the nature of capital is that it wants to be diffuse and it wants to be free. It wants to be diffuse to minimize risk. So you're not putting all your eggs in one basket, which means that regulatory regimes are just bad for returns. And they also want to be able to do whatever they want to do to get the highest rate of return, which means excessive leverage and taking risk. Now, you know, and to a certain extent, you know, let, let's be fair for a minute. What is the point of a banking system? The point of a banking system is to concentrate risk. That's what it's for. The, the very note is it's to channel capital into things that might not work. It is to um, get a, perform a maturity transformation so that people that don't need money now can get money. People who need money now can get it from people who don't need it now, right? So, you know, banking systems are, are, are all over the world for a reason. And you can have better or worse ones. But ultimately, you know, if you go back to a 90, if you went back to a 1930s style regulation queue, interest rate cap, four silos, four types of banks, make banking boring again, um, you know, would it destroy the economy? No. Um, would it make mortgages way more expensive? Hell yeah. Uh, would it make them harder to get? Yeah. Would that piss off the American middle classes? Yes. Would they likely join forces with the banks to say that there isn't enough credit in the system and good people can't get houses, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, because all that happened in the 1970s. Citibank and Acorn were on the one side of the table in the 1970s about deregulation. There's no reason to think those politics wouldn't come around again. And then the people who would benefit from those policies would actually say, yeah, we need to do this. And then we go down that way and then you get the usual problems and it blows up again. It's the nature of the beast. What? Thing is now that you mentioned the 70s, both Britain and America had what I called the two most toxic leaders, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. How did like such a strong idea of deregulation like, find itself so popular during that time? Well, there's two different things there. One's the idea of deregulation, the other one is the notion that Thatcher and Reagan were toxic. There's millions of people in both countries who would disagree with you. Given the current quality of the political classes, now I've had a straight up choice between Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump, I would vote for Reagan. I've had a straight-up choice between Theresa May, who's basically a shadow of Thatcher, and Thatcher, I might well not vote for Thatcher. And I would never vote for a Tory in my life. So, you know, be careful when we're bandying these things around. If you want to understand Reagan, the best book you can read is Rick Perlstein's The Invisible Bridge. And it basically makes the following argument. If you go back to 1969, it's the summer of love, well, summer of love plus one. The hippie movement, California is the place to be. And there's a guy called Ronald Reagan, and he's like, uh, I can't remember he's governor at that time, but he's on the regents, he's running the regents of the University of California, and he hates hippies, and he believes in traditional values and all that. And you couldn't find a guy that is more out of time. I mean, he's just a laughing stock. And then he, Rick walks us through the 1970s and reminds us of just how utterly bonkers the 70s was. The me movement and self-help and... Eric von Dannegan books, Was God an Astronaut, and all the craziness, the inflation of the period, all that sort of stuff, and the politics that went on. And what he does is he cuts back periodically to Reagan. And what you see is this moment whereby the whole world couldn't be more different from Reagan in 1969. By the time you get to 1979, Reagan hasn't changed at all. The whole world has come to him. And that was the same thing with Thatcher. The world changed 
the system that worked for the working classes for the 50s, 60s, and 70s began to fall apart. And as it began to fall apart, particularly at the same time as it was hurting large swages of capital, there was an intellectual and political revolution that put those two people in power. Now, they restored the value of capital. If you have a capitalist system, you cannot have a capitalist system where the value of capital is either uncertain or negative. And that's what you had by the late 70s. So they did what they were meant to do historically. If you look at this on a Marxist, a Marxist reading, they were exactly the class functionaries that you would expect to find in that crisis of profitability moment. And they restored the profitability of capital. They did what they, what they were there to do. Now, how do they go along with a deregulatory idea? I mean, well, it depends what you mean by deregulatory idea. Should banks be able to lever up a billion to one? No, and they're actually not able to. Right, but you know, sixty to one's probably too much. Fifteen to one would be better, but then your mortgages would be more expensive. So you got to take that off with a smooth. Let's see deg deregulation. Otherwise, should governments run airlines? Every time I've ever been on a government-run airline, at least one that used to be run in the developed West, it was horrible. How do you do customer service if there's a soft budget constraint and there's no competition? So no, deregulate the crap out of that. Now, you could say that, you know, well, the airlines in the U.S. now are all deregulated. It's a horrible experience flying across the country. Yeah, but more and more people are able to do it. It's democratized it. And if you pay a bit more, it's reasonably, it's reasonably okay. And it's still way below its 1970s costs in real terms. So, again, you know, just taking these big sort of categories of, you know, Thatcher was evil and deregulation bad, you're not really helping anyone by doing that. It's like you got to – this is a huge problem for the left. Right? If, if all you've got are sort of like one-time dump-it-down slogans, you're going to get ripped apart. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, yeah, and I, I guess I was a little careless with my wording because um, I was trying to like shorten my question. So um, you're absolutely right. Although I disagree with you on airline deregulation because airlines seem more akin to trains like on trains you can't really have that much competition because the cost of starting up is so high right and analyzing the train seems like the best idea yeah no I'm, absolutely and the reason i'm comparatively convinced the reason the united states doesn't want high-speed train actually has more to do with racial politics and segregation than it has to do with economics but essentially people do not public transport is basically about people keeping themselves separate from people who are different from them. That actually makes a lot of sense. And that's why they have the trains that are the least att attractive and least comfortable ones. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the, the other one is, I mean, I used to take the bus all the time in, across the United States when I was younger. And I, quite often, I would be the minority on the bus. That is the white guy. That, that makes so much sense. I mean, I've never understood the, like, I mean, we can like have high-speed rails, like connecting LA to Chicago and like what they have in China with bullet trains. But um, I get, that, that makes so much sense now that you explain it. It really does, yeah. <laughs> I've only taken a Greyhound a couple of times, but yeah, thinking about it, as you said that, that totally tracks with the, the few experiences I've had. That, that makes so much sense. I mean, I've never understood the, like, I mean, we can like have high-speed rails, like connecting LA to Chicago and like what they have in China with bullet trains. But um, I get, that that makes so much sense now that you explained it. <laughs> no, no take, that back, take that back to our earlier conversation about class bubbles, right? People like living in these secure environments, which particularly if you are the sort of top 20% of the income distribution and you're white, which means that you're politically connected and powerful in this country, then, you know, high-speed rail is one of those things you like the abstract notion of, but are you actually ever going to take it? They would prefer a private kind that's that's sealed off from, yeah, from everybody else. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's like, why this country loves SUVs. SUVs gives you the impression complete isolation. You're driving a tank up a highway. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, so we don't have much time left. Um, do you have any comments, questions, anything that we didn't cover that you want to tell the audience? No, I'm totally fine. It's your conversation. <laughs> okay. Um, well, thank you so much for coming here on your vacation. Um, have a great vacation. All right. Talk to you soon. All the best. Thank you for listening to Historically. Our wonderful music is produced by Rectech. You can find them at soundcloud.com slash rectech. 